everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host today, and with me as usual is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Howdy, partner. Welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast, episode number 142. The Malthouse Games Podcast is a podcast all about board games, card games, role-playing games, dice games, tabletop games, things of that sort, and beer slash other drinks, mostly beer, but other drinks as well. Like this morning, we will be having a beer to be continued, but we are starting off bright and early with the poor man's Costco coffee. What do we have, Dalton? So we have coffee here from Winco. Uh, we were introduced to Winco by Sarah, one of our friends, and uh, we found out there's one in Oklahoma City, down south, probably about 25 minutes from us. Yes, and they have a ton of bulk food. They have a ton of off-brand food. I call it the poor man's Costco or the poor man's Sam's because you can buy in bulk without a membership. It's open 24 hours a day, and you can only use cash or debit. Yes, that's exactly it. Like, it's it's a great place. We find that the packaged items, like, oh, I need mustard. That's all pretty comparable. In some places, it's cheaper. In some places, more expensive, just how grocery stores go. But I don't think anything beats their bulk. Their bulk is actually really well-priced. No, you can buy like a whole pound of garbanzo bean flour for about $2. Yeah, it's insane. And so they also have a giant bulk coffee section, which you've seen similar likes of it in Whole Foods or wherever. Uh, But they have flavored coffees and regular. And this is a mixture of vanilla bean Mm -hmm. and what? Uh, One of the dark roasts. And one of the dark roasts because... We did vanilla bean and what was the other one? Uh, it was like a like caramel. caramel. Yeah. And it was too much. I, it Way was, too sweet. It was too sweet, too much flavoring. So I was like, well, let's take the vanilla that we like and let's mix the bag because they don't care. It's You're paying for the bag of coffee, not for which coffee you're buying, which is interesting. That's how you know that it's all just basically the same coffee, but with like a, a little bit of artificial flavoring added. All mm-hmm. the coffee is the same price. They don't care if it's mixed and match. You buy a bag of coffee. What the what that entails, that is choose your own adventure, my friend. It is coffee. Yeah, but uh, Winco has been great. It's been a great bulk destination for us, uh, especially in regards to camping food because they have, as Haley said, not only do they have garbanzo bean powder or flour, essentially, but they also have a hummus mix. You add water, you have hummus. They have a falafel mix. You add water, you have falafel. Onion like, soup mix. Onion soup mix. They've got all the trail mixes and nuts and cashews and peanuts and dried fruits and everything you could possibly want and it's all affordable i basically got three full meals of falafel hummus and onion soup for less than ten dollars three full meals for both of us that means you get a lot of toots for less than ten dollars a lot of toots so that one's gonna be sleeping outside of the tent in a hammock we gotta make sure to stake the tent down well or else we're gonna be levitating above the ground we're gonna be like up a really stinky up it's gonna be a really (laughs) stinky up so that's what we've been up to we went to winco what else we do this last two weeks, Delty Poo? Uh, I don't remember what we did last week. Last week we went to your parents' house. We did. It was Easter weekend. Uh, we went to my parents' house to have dinner and just, uh, I guess, more lunch and just visit with them. We uh, brought hot pot. We brought hot pot and had a massive hot pot feast. As massive, so massive that we ate on it until Friday night. Yeah, we bought too much. We bought too much. We spent a lot, and then the good thing is, is we had it there with my family, and then we came home and we had it with a friend the next night. And then we had some more, and then we had some more, and I think we still have a couple things left over. We do. We bought a lot of vegetables, but shout out to Delton's dad for being a trooper. 71 years old is never too late to try something new, like a lotus root. 72, I think, Seven- right? Yeah. December of 49. Oh, God. Yeah, 72. He'll be 73 this December? Yeah. No, he'll be 74 this December. He's 73 right now. Is he? Yeah. Ah, shit, he's old. So, (laughs) never too late to try something new, and he was a trooper, and he ate it, and his mom loved it, of course, but we made hot pot for Easter. Yep, got to visit with my brother and sister-in-law, and niece and nephew, and mom and dad, and just hang out, and uh, just visit with family, which was nice. Absolutely, and then yesterday, we got to do one of my bucket list items. I have always wanted to do this. I have lived in the great state of Oklahoma for 31 years now, and have never got the chance to do this. Or I guess I've had chances, but never had the opportunity, never taken the opportunity. But yesterday we made the two-hour drive up northwest to go to the Great Salt Plains. We did. So if you go north of where we live, which we're in Edmond, north of Oklahoma City, basically part of the metro. Uh, if you are driving in Oklahoma City and you literally just go past one street and suddenly you're in Edmond, so it's that kind of you know, uh, uh, I don't want to say a suburb of Oklahoma City, but basically. Uh, but if you go north of us. 
uh, about an hour and then turn west about 20 minutes. You're in a town called Enid, uh, which is doing a lot better than it was when I was a kid or we were kids, which we yeah. talked about. It has. It, we So I talked about it, I think it was in 2021 in summer when I went yeah. to Enid and we had the uh, Enid Brewing Company mm-hmm. who had given us some beers to try. I uh, really like Enid. It's really come up like Delton said. So we stopped there and had good Mexican food before driving another hour out west to go to the Great Salt Plains. Yes, it's the Great Salt Plains, which is a giant plain, a giant area of just this salt-crusted dirt because it used to be the bottom of an ocean at some point millions of years ago. Yeah, it, it, the salt kind of reminds me of Death Valley. It's not as yeah. thick as Death Valley by any means. But it was really neat because they have this area protected because from October through March, it's migratory bird season. And so you'll have eagles, you'll have shorebirds, you'll have lots of other, oh, you'll have whooping cranes as well will come and migrate there. Yep. And so for that reason, 99% of the park is closed between October and March. Yeah, and they it, don't want the babies around the whooping cranes because that's how you get whooping cough. That's true. Yeah. Science. <laughs> <laughs> and so it opened up April 1st and starting on April 1st. So it's, it's run by the Department of the Interior, the Department, U.S. Department of Wild, Wildlife Services. Yep. And so everything's free, but you, you drive in. It has a little sectioned area that you can actually walk on and dig for crystals. It's the only place in the world that has the hourglass selenite crystals. Yes, you should look them up. Look up selenite crystals. I believe it's S-E-L-E-N-I-T-E. But selenite crystals, or you can look up Oklahoma Great Salt Plains, and it's these interesting crystals. There's an area you're digging, and we got down and we dug, a, started digging and kind of looking through the dirt and couldn't find anything and dug like a pretty good-sized little hole, and we're like, what the heck? And then uh, Lakin, Haley's niece, just walks over and sticks her shovel in the dirt and flips it and goes, hey, I found one. And then it was just, we found like 40 from then on. We've, like, okay, so every person is allowed to bring home 10 pounds per day which is a lot of crystals. We did not bring home that much, but we were there digging for about 45 minutes and we got a solid pound of crystals. Probably so. And it was only after we left that we realized how you're supposed to dig because they're very fragile. So when you're digging through with a trowel or something, they're really easy to bust up. So I guess what they say to do is to dig a hole two foot in diameter by two foot deep. And then once you get about two feet deep, it's really watery. The ground, the ground down there, it's basically where the water table is, I guess. And it fills in and it says to take that water and you kind of splash it on the sides and wash away the dirt and the crystals actually form connected to one another. So when we're digging through and going like, oh, I took a scoop and I found one. A lot of times what we're doing is breaking them apart. And so we're not getting the full image of them. Uh, however, it's still super cool and something we want to go do. And it's just fascinating that it's in, nor- you know, toward the northwest of Oklahoma where there's not a lot going on. There's just this giant salt basin. Yeah, I rolled down the window to take some pictures, and it was basically like snowing salt in our car. Yeah, my car needs washed horribly now inside. Horribly. And it was already bad, and now it's really bad. Now it's real bad. I it's- say that. It's actually not that bad. It's just it's just some dirt and sand. Would you like your car salted or unsalted? Uh, I'm supposed to watch my sodium, so unsalted, please. <laughs> it was really enjoyable. It was very much worth the two-hour drive to dig for 45 minutes. Yes. 100% worth it. Bucket list. We'll do it again. If you ever have the chance to do it, if you're ever in Oklahoma, please, please, please check it out. It's great. It's very, very cool. And then we went into Enid afterward because uh, Riley and Lakin had to bugger off back home. They had some things to do on a Sunday or a Saturday afternoon. And we went into Enid and went to go get coffee. And then the coffee shop was closing in five minutes. We thought it was not. And then they also only took cash. So we didn't get to try the coffee. And then we went to... We're going to go to the comic book store, which we found out had closed, but had moved to a booth in one of the like antique vintage consignment stores. And we went to that place, which was massive, great pricing on everything, and had so much good stuff. And it was clean and organized, which I always appreciate with a big consignment antique store. And I want to go back. So sometime we'll go back to Enid and check out some more of the shops and go have some coffee and hit the breweries and stuff like that. Yes, because I brought back a beer from Enid Brewery. Yes. But there's another brewery. I don't remember the name. I don't remember the name, but the reason I didn't go last time is because, one, I can only go to one brewery and have one flight and be a responsible person. Uh, But two, it was actually closed the week that I went up there. But next time we go up, we'll have to get a sampling from that, come back and review it. Oh, absolutely. We'll bring like a beer or two back and do that. Yes. And so it was a really fun day yesterday. We've had an extremely good week. Uh, Delton actually sat down and started learning some Japanese with me for our trip coming up in two years. 
We had a pretty restful week. We had some good food, and we also played some fun games. Oh, here's the door. It's straight ahead. It's it's a game. So the game for today, which I think I've mentioned in the past at some point, I don't know, maybe when I bought it, is Port Royal, the big box edition. Uh, Port Royal is a game designed by Alexander Pfister. The original game has artwork and design and stuff, or I guess just artwork by Clemens Franz, who I always talk about loving his artwork. This edition, the big box, is it says it is a phantasmagoria creative based on the original design by Clemens Franz. The graphic design is Jens Visa. The realization is Klaus Oetmeyer and Irina Seifert. And the English translation is by Ralph H. Anderson. This is published and distributed by Pegasus Spiele, who we've talked about several times. I feel like they do a lot of games from Fister and just, you know, Europe in general. So Port Royale is what I'm going to say, one of the simplest push-your-luck games. So we talk about push-your-luck games a lot because Haley really enjoys them, even though she busts all the time. Unless I'm planning on it, then that's what she does. Uh, we love Quacks of Quedlinburg. We both really, really love Cubitos as well. Both of those are great games and very, very fun. Uh, anytime there's a way that Haley can push her luck, she's going to do it. Anytime I can push my luck, I'm going to be way too hesitant to the point of underdoing it, and then I'm going to end up overdoing it, and I just fail all around. That's why I only bring 20 bucks cash to a casino. Correct. Which luckily on those, I don't have to make decisions because I don't know how to gamble properly. I just pull a little lever on a machine or push a button, I guess, anymore. Anyway, uh, Port Royal, like I said, this is the big box edition. However, we are only going to be reviewing the base game because the big box not only comes with the base game, it also comes with the make sale standalone game that can also be combined. It comes with the expansion of Just One More Contract, and it comes with the expansion of The Adventure Begins. So, oh, uh, sorry, there's also the promo cards of The Gambler. I'm ignoring everything aside from the base game. And that's just for the fact of, A, we haven't dug into those yet, and B, uh, some people really like this. I mean, this box is not big, but it's larger than it needs to be. The other box is smaller than this. And some people really love the look. I love Clemens Franz artwork, so the other version was really appealing to me but it's out of print, kind of hard to find. And this one, well, I think it was on sale when I bought it, but it's the big box with everything that we can slowly unravel. If you just had the base game, it could definitely be a purse game if you just brought the cards. It's a decent sized deck of cards, but you could. Like if you had one of those Ultra Pro deck boxes for like magic cards, I think you could squeeze these in there if they're unsleeved. I really do. But uh, to actually talk about the game here, so Port Royal is based, I say based, it is a theme of pirates essentially. Uh, Port Royal, I believe, is a port in Jamaica. This is one of those moments <laughs> where we have to Google live. We're doing it live, Cotton. If you type in Port Royal, Port Royal, I'm going to pull this up. This is the Wikipedia article, so you know it's accurate. Port Royal is a town located at the end of Palisados at the mouth of Kingston Harbor in southeastern Jamaica. It okay. was founded in 1494 by the Spanish. It was once the largest city in the Caribbean, functioning as the center of shipping and commerce in the Caribbean Sea by the uh, latter half of the 17th century. Just look at the outfits these cats are wearing. Can you imagine wearing that <laughs> in Jamaica? No, no thanks. It's How hot. miserable. It's real hot there. You're sweating through seven layers of wool. Oh, God. Speaking, yeah, no, climate. Uh, this is really funny because you say that and there's immediately climate. There's a tropical savanna climate, short dry season from January to April, lengthy wet from May to October. Temperatures remain steady throughout the year with dry season being slightly cooler with the range from 77 to 81 in May. The oh, wow. average annual precipitation is 53 inches. Wow. So it's constantly pretty warm by the sounds of it, but also not terrible. Probably gets pretty hot though. Oh yeah. Anyway, Port Royal is a pirating game that the theme is essentially that Caribbean pirates. Um, but aside from that, there is literally nothing else about this game that is anything historical, which is kind of hilarious. They just use the name Port Royal. Uh, anyway, the game is a push your luck game that is a deck of cards. There are no tokens. There are no pencils and paper. There are no boards. There are no anything else. It is one deck of cards. And the cards are, in very Alexander Pfister style, multi-use. And it's a very simple multi-use. The front of the card is going to have some sort of detail on it for the gameplay. It's either going to have a profession, an expedition, taxes, or ships. Th those are just four different things that you, know, can, you can get in the game. The back of the card indicates a coin. That is your money. 
So to set the game up, this is why this game is it. It's one of those games I keep thinking about wanting to play with people because it's so simple. To set the game up, you have a deck of cards. You shuffle it. Everybody gets three cards face down, which means that the coin side is up. So that's three coins. Start the game. That's it. It's so simple. It's so easy. There's not any more complexities to it than that. So the way the game is going to function is on your turn, you will reveal cards from the top of the deck and place them down. Uh, and I can, they call it a certain thing, like if it's the event display or the display, I don't know. But basically, you're flipping, uh, flipping these cards over and revealing them. And you're trying to reveal enough to where there's something you want to take or want to purchase. But if you reveal too many, there's a chance that you are going to bust and not be able to take anything. So the way the game functions in terms of that is when you flip these cards over, there are ships. There are 50 ships. There are 10 of each color, yellow, blue, green, red, and black. If you ever, when you're revealing on your turn, reveal two ships of the same color, you've busted. Now, there is a kicker there. The professions in this game are different things you can purchase. They're either going to give you an ability or something that you can use to like make it a little easier to do stuff. You can also use them to fulfill the expeditions, which are cards that come out that are like a quest, and you can get rid of your profession cards to then take it. It's worth a high amount of points, gives you some money in return. They're the way that you're going to get a good amount of points and probably push over that point limit to end the game. And what happens here is there are some cards which are soldiers, uh, not soldiers, sailors and pirates. The sailors and the pirates have swords. What those swords do is each ship card that comes out has a number of swords indicated in the bottom middle of the card. If you have equal or higher than that amount of swords, you can actually bounce that ship to the discard pile, ignoring it. So if you've got enough swords out, and let's say you have a red ship already out, and you draw another red ship, and that new red ship says, hey, you need two swords, and you've got two, boom, that red ship goes in the discard, you don't bust, you can keep going if you want. That is the way that you can get further and further because the color of the ships matters for how many cards you get to take. If you reveal 0, 1, 2, or 3 different ship colors, let's say you've got yellow, blue, green out on the table, uh, you get to take one card from that display whenever you decide to stop and take a card or hire a profession or whatever. If you can get four different colors of ships out, you get to take two cards and if you get all five colors out, you get to take three cards from the display. Which I don't think has ever happened for us. Not for us. I've never focused hard enough on the swords to be able to bounce the stuff. And there are some ships that cannot be bounced at all. So you're going to do that. You're going to reveal cards until you decide to stop or until you bust. If you decide to stop, you then can purchase or take a card. You can either purchase a profession, paying the coin value, putting it in front of you. Like I said, it either provides you with swords, special abilities such as... Uh, buying a profession for cheaper. Uh, there could be ones that if your opponents bust, you gain a coin, which is helpful, and all of that. Uh, you will either do that, or you will take a ship, and when you take the ship, it just goes to discard, and each ship has a number of coins uh, notated on it, anywhere from one to four, I believe. And so ships are just, it's considered the trade action. You're just going to get coins, which is nice and simple. Once you take your cards, every other player in turn order has the ability to then give you one of their coins to also take one card. If you happen to get four different ships out, four different colors of ships out, and you can take two cards, your opponents still can only take one card from that display. So that's a, a good little thing. And they, since they give you a coin for it, it can help you out. But if you have too many coins and a tax increase hits, that's bad for you. Tax increases, there are four of them that's in the deck. When they come out, if you have 12 or more coins, you have to discard half of them rounding down, and then somebody, based on either the most swords or the least amount of points at the table, will gain a coin after that. So it's essentially don't just stockpile money. It's bad. And the deck reshuffles too. So even though there's just yes. four in the deck, they could come out more often. They could come out more often, but they could also be stuck as somebody's coin until they spend it. That's true. So another thing I always enjoy with uh, uh, multi-use cards is you never know what cards wear, and so it really changes up the probabilities of things in a way. No peeking. No peeking. Exactly. Uh, that's really the game. You're going to go until somebody gets 12 points, and once somebody gets 12 points, you're going to finish that round out. Uh, basically, whoever is a start player, everybody gets the same amount of turns as the active person that's actually pushing their luck. Uh, that's it. That's the whole game. It's really simple. It's not a complicated game. It's easy to explain. It's easy to set up. It's easy to play. It's easy to put away. I just really like it. It's so simple and clean. 
the only thing I had struggled with was actually last night on the last turn. It was my turn, and I, Haley was the start player, and I bought a card thinking, okay, if I buy this, I put it at the, uh, I get to put the points at twelve for me, which means I'm ending the game after my turn. But all Haley had to do was give me a coin and buy a two point card because she was at eleven and put her at thirteen, so she won. So I really needed to make the decision there of either I'm just going to push until I bust so she can't buy anything or I need to make sure I could win. So it was like this weird thing where I just basically shot myself in the foot right there at the last second. I like I got to the finish line and then decided to sit down. That was basically what happened. And I was like, God damn it. But it's fine. Uh, so that's kind of a weird little thing that can happen, I guess. You just have to be aware of. But uh, aside from that, which was strange, I still really like it. Yeah, because so whoever is the start player, like Delton said, the the other player also gets a turn. So like, let's say the start player ends it, the other players still get to take their turn as well. But I still have the chance to play a card on his turn if he doesn't bust. And so it's a little bit of strategery in that. Yes. But otherwise, it's a lot of just push your luck and push your luck and push your luck. Exactly, because you busted several times. I did. <laughs> First time I played this, I think I won by six points. And last night, I won by one. It, it, yes. was, getting, it was getting to close it was cutting it real close. I went heavy swords last night. I had four of them, I think. And so I was able to use those swords to just bounce ships and bounce ships and really help me progress getting to the point of two cards or just drawing more cards out for more options. But the more options I put out for myself are the more options for you as well, depending on what we're doing. So that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, but the game's just, it, it's just really simple. There's not a lot of iconography. Uh, what they do have is pretty easy to understand. I don't think there's anything that would be confusing there. Once you look at it uh, and read what it does, I, that's really it. I enjoy the game a lot. It's super simple. I'm excited to dive into some of the expansion content, which is uh, different types of professions, uh, different types of contracts that want you to do things. It adds some other professions in, like the gunner, the clerk, the vice admiral. There's new ships where it gives you coins, but it also gives a coin to your opponents, which is crazy. Uh, they also have a solo and cooperative variant, which is kind of neat. Uh, so there's all kinds of stuff we haven't explored here. And they even have a sort of, uh, not really a campaign-esque, but kind of a campaign-esque game where you're trying to score points and uh, do different things. It's for the cooperative version. So there's a lot of things in the big box, but just based on the base game, I really like it. I think it's a, a solid entry. It only took us 30 minutes to play. I think it could be faster for us. Uh, even with the full table of how much this goes to, this goes one to five. Even with five people, I don't think it would take more than maybe 45 minutes, depending on if everybody knows what they're doing. Absolutely. And it's it's one that we can bust out easily. There's not a yes. lot of setup at all. And it's a really fun game. I enjoy it a lot. I like it a lot. It's real simple. That's I mean, that's basically Port Royal. There's not a lot more to say about it since we didn't don't have the expansion content. But if you like the base game idea, you like simple push your luck, it's definitely one to grab. Speaking of grab, let's grab our beer. So the beer for today, as I talked about, I think last episode, I have not been drinking alcohol with my new medicine until I, I needed to talk to my message, my doctor, just to see, can, you know, can, can I have a beer? Like just one, maybe two, uh, just to find that out. But I haven't been doing that. So I've been, for the moment, just getting non-alcoholic beers because it's nice to try. It's nice to have some on the podcast too, uh, just because I know there are people that listen that don't drink. And I want to make sure that to talk about some of those options as well, because I've talked about how much Athletic Brewing Co. has been, I think, the king of non-alcoholic beers. Uh, so today, in trying something different that's a little more uh, mainstream? I think so. A little more mainstream, a little more well-known, a little more accessible to people outside of Oklahoma. Yes. This is uh, non-alcoholic Guinness. It has the widget and everything. It's got the little rocket widget inside that releases some extra nitrogen whenever you crack it. Um, non-alcoholic draft, uh, contains less than 0.5% alcohol, which is all non-alcoholic beers, uh, by volume. I just realized too, the serving facts on the back is under for 12 fluid ounces, but this is 14.9. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Kind of, which is, they, they did it right. Uh, where was it? On here somewhere, it said something cause this is, you know, zero alcohol, but basically where did it go? Yeah. 60 calories for a serving, but it's actually another, whatever quarter of 65 is. I thought that was kind of funny. But basically, it's like a 70, maybe 80 calorie beer. And we're going to split it. We will go back to your regularly scheduled programming next podcast with the beer. We actually bought a beer to review. Yes. Uh, but we got a little sleepy last night, and we thought we would much rather produce quality content. We're both awake recording 
And also, I don't want to drink an alcoholic beverage at 8 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday. Yes, that's the thing. This is not alcoholic. It's going to feel weird drinking a quote-unquote beer. At, I mean, it really is a beer, just with no alcohol. It's going to be weird drinking what is essentially a beer on a Sunday morning. But yeah, last night, Haley was like, all right, you ready to record? I was like, first of all, you're falling asleep at the table. Second of all, I'm exhausted. It's going to be the worst, lowest energy, most boring episode because I don't think I can hold it together. So we will save the ice chest beer from Coop Ale for next podcast to be continued. Just in time for summer and getting our kitty pool out. It is almost that season, my friends. Almost that season. Yeah, the bad thing is everything's growing right now. So today is also yard work day. However, I say it's bad. The high today is like 69.70. Nice. And... It's a really nice day. I just got the new weed eater in because my old weed eater broke and I finally just threw it away because the thing was making me mad because I couldn't fix it because it was broke. Uh, It was just janky. Will you set that down, please? It looks like a Guinness. It looks like a Guinness. It smells like a Guinness. It smells mostly like a Guinness. It quacks like a Guinness. Well, give give it a taste and see how it tastes. I I think that it's not spot on, but it's pretty dang close, actually. They did a pretty good job. That is pretty darn close. It tastes a little sweeter than an actual Guinness. It tastes sweeter. It almost tastes a little bit like they added like a grape juice. I, I think it is because it doesn't have the alcohol burn that maybe it's not that it's sweeter. It's just not being followed up with that alcohol. And maybe, so, it, so it tastes a little sweeter on the it's tongue. It's also slightly less thick. Slightly less thick, yes. But it's got plenty of head because the nitrogen. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's as close Guinness. as you're going to get to a Guinness, yeah. Oh, yeah. Very good. 10 out of 10 would recommend. Still feel weird drinking beer at 8.20 on a Sunday morning. But you know what? You know what? We're doing it for you. Yeah, it's it's really not too bad. If you uh, if you want to try some non-alcoholic beers, uh, my go-to right now has been Athletic Brewing Co. I just, they make fantastic stuff. Uh, but this non-alcoholic Guinness is pretty good. It's actually, to me, far better than like the regular non-alcoholic mainstream beers. But it's also, I always liked Guinness. I will say, much, much better cold. Normal Guinness, I can drink room temp, no problem. Uh, this Guinness, I had it one the other day and slowly drank it over the course of a while. And by the time I got to the end, I was like, okay, it's not as good when it's warming up a little bit. But if you have a buddy or yourself who is abstaining from alcohol for any reason or for one reason or another, I think you might enjoy this one. It's yeah, pretty good. For sure. Well, with that beer out of the way. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. The topic for today is going to be impulsive gaming. Yes, impulsive gaming, impulse control in games. So we've kind of talked about pressure luck in the past, and we'll be touching on pressure luck in a bit, but there's much more to impulse control than just pressure luck. But let's start with the pressure luck, Delty. What's examples of pressure luck in games? What is it? Tell us about all about it. Uh, pressing your luck is everything Port Royal is. You're flipping a card. Well, if I flip one more card, I maybe could get to take two. You flip another card. Ooh, I didn't bust. Hmm, I think if I flip one more, I could still do it. And you end up trying to go too far. Uh, it's the same thing with Quacks of Quedlinburg. You pull a chip from your bag. You're like, you know, if I get any white chip, if you've played Quacks of Quedlinburg, you put some chips on a board, uh, white ones are bad. And if the white-valued chips add up to seven... Uh, sorry, more than seven, you bust. So if you're at, uh, if you're right at seven, you're like, if I draw any white chip, I bust. We just got to go for it. I want, I need, I need to get further along. I need more points. I need more whatever. And you pull that chip, you've busted. So it's all about pushing that luck, whether it be dice rolling, card drawing, drawing from a bag. There's always a random element involved with push your luck. And push your luck is all about poor impulse control because it really feeds off of uh, that chance that you're rooting for. You want it to hit. You've, you're excited. There's this small thing where you're like, maybe I could do it. Maybe I could do it. Maybe I could do it, which is how gambling happens. Yes, absolutely. It is basically your uh, operant conditioning. You're rewarded every once in a while, and you're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to hit it big, which is why the first game of Port Royal, I got like 18, 19 points. The second game, I got 12. 12. You had 12. The first, first time we played? First time you had 12 and I had 6. Okay, maybe I just hit that 12 really quickly. You hit 12 really quickly, or I was just really slow. I just fed that impulse control. Like, I have I have a lot of trouble with pressure luck games, and I know the science behind it. I know how to, you know, manage impulse control, but I don't, I don't want to use those cognitive resources in games. I just want to go balls to the wall. Let's do it, man. Let's try to get the biggest points, and I end up losing miserably in my favorite game, Quacks of Quedlinburg. Yes, constantly. <laughs> But pressure luck is all about that. It's all about, like Haley said, that operant conditioning that, hey, you you know what it tastes like to be a winner. Do you want to be a winner again? Just keep trying. And it's like inside your head, you've got that little demon 
and he's smothered the little angel and you're just like, oh, if I keep going and mm-hmm. that's just that's what it does over and over and over again. So the operant conditioning is whenever you are intermittently reinforced. So whether that is by variable reinforcement or uh, well, usually variable reinforcement. So like uh, B.F. Skinner was the psychologist that really coined the term of it whenever he was doing experiments with pigeons. So it's different than classical conditioning. Classical conditioning is whenever you reinforce every single time. But Pavlov, uh, Pavlov yes. Yeah. So whenever Pavlov rang the bell, he fed the dog. So they were conditioned classically to have their salivation to the bell. But operant conditioning, you never really know when you're going to be reinforced for it, which the research suggests that operant conditioning is uh, more difficult to break. So, for example, uh, whenever we go to work, we're paid every two weeks, theoretically speaking, right? That's classical conditioning. I know if I work two weeks, I get paid. I work two weeks, I get paid. If your boss went like two weeks and didn't pay you, you'd be like, okay, I quit, right? Because we're used to being reinforced every time. Yeah. But if you're reinforced operantly, where you never really know when you're going to be reinforced, it makes it more likely that you stay there longer. So if you mm-hmm. got random paychecks, like, okay, sometimes I get paid on the 1st, sometimes on the 15th, sometimes on the 3rd, sometimes on the 27th, then you're more likely to stay longer because you're like, the paycheck's coming. The paycheck's coming. Ah, I see. The paycheck's coming. And so you're more likely to stay in longer, which is why gambling uh, is so addictive because it's operant, it's uh, reinforced variably. Yeah. You never really know when it's going to happen. That's really interesting, and it, it, it makes my brain go to this place, and maybe this has absolutely zero connection, but uh, this is definitely psychology-related. On a, an, I want to say almost a, a, not really on the like mirrored side, but almost, I, I don't know if it's reciprocal or what you would say it is, but kind of a counter to it is operant conditioning. Is there any kind of connection between operant conditioning and trauma triggers? Because they both are, in, in operant conditioning, you're rewarded in variable times, but in trauma triggers, you are, I don't want to use the term rewarded and I don't want to say punished, but you are triggered at sometimes at variable times. Is that part of the reason that like an anxiety or something could be stronger because you never know when it's going to trigger? Is that a thing at all? Cause in my brain it makes sense, but I don't, I don't know if there's any connection there. I think that's a really great point. Um, I think you really see that play out in what we call the anxious attachment styles mm-hmm. where, you, where that is if a child uh, wasn't sure what kind of parent they were going to get, Were they going to get the parent who was, so it would be the same parent. So sometimes, so anxious attachment styles happen when your uh, needs are variably met. So, you know, if you're crying, sometimes mom or dad will come comfort you. If you're crying, sometimes mom and dad will come in and scream at you. If you're crying, sometimes mom and dad will ignore you. When you never know what you're going to get, that makes it more likely to develop that anxious attachment style because you're like, huh, what's coming? What's coming? Am I going to get my needs met this way or this way? Am I going to have to fend for myself? Am I going to be comforted? Just that not knowing can increase that risk of attachment, of, ang- of anxiety, of anxious attachment style. There we go. Okay. Words. Okay. So it's sort of similar, but I mean, obviously different, but well, kind of a similar, uh, a similar version of that. Well, that can also, you know, when it comes to like relationships, so like if you think about like uh, abusive relationships or unhealthy relationships or relationships with, the, with high conflict, mm-hmm. you know, you do have that variable reinforcement of sometimes you get the love, sometimes you get the, the pain. Okay. And so if we think about like relationships that are unhealthy or relationships that are volatile in some ways, there's still that those good parts in it. We don't just stay in relationships that are just bad. There's still good parts. And so I think what you were saying, like the the operate, like when it comes to trauma, like sometimes you get that reward. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you get um, someone meets you where you are. Sometimes you get pain. Sometimes okay. you get that support. Sometimes you don't. And so that can keep us in those relationships that are unhealthy. That makes sense. So basically my mind was twisting it to where the, uh, let's say the negative response or the negative outcome in my brain was the operant conditioning thing, like a mirror of it. But really, it is a style of operant conditioning. However, it's for the good parts that are sprinkled within that bad situation. Yes. That's fascinating. Yeah. Did I just hold a mirror up for your childhood? Uh, <laughs> anxiety. I know a lot about anxious attachment style. <laughs> I don't have anxiety. I am anxiety. I'm you the physical anxiety. embodiment of anxiety. Well, that's very off topic, but I also I wanted to connect that thought while it was in the moment. That way we could talk about it. And hopefully it's interesting for you listeners. No, that's fair. Anyway. I think mean, that's good. So yeah, operant <laughs> conditioning. Uh, the reason why it is so... It, uh, so it really feeds off of poor impulse control because mm-hmm. the reward can happen at any time. You never really know when. So you're like, oh, this could be the next one. That makes sense. And we humans uh, attribute way more power to ourselves than we actually have. Yeah. And we also attribute uh, power to like luck objects and whatnot. So like, for example, uh, what's his name? Michael Jordan would wear his University of North Carolina shorts under his Bulls 
uniform because they thought it brought them more luck. And so when it comes to like impulse control and whatnot, or like these games where you're pressing your luck, we're like, oh yeah, I'm lucky. I can do this. I feel it. I feel it's right. What means nothing, but it feels right. And so, and I feel it too. Like in the moment, whenever I'm like pressing, you're like, oh yeah, this one feels right. Okay. I only have three ships out. Right. I, I really believe I can get that fourth one. Damn it. It's another <laughs> yellow. <laughs> Exactly, and it, it's 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 like the people in uh, uh when you go to casinos, the people that are so very very ritualistic about their gambling, they'll be at a, a slot machine and they tap the screen in a certain way, they make a pattern, they say a thing, they they rub it just a certain way, they put their money in just right, or they uh, they have a cigarette every so many pulls of the thing. Like everybody has this ritual that they believe increases their chances, even though it doesn't. But it's that same thing, right? They feel like it's working, and so then they keep doing it, and they're reinforced sporadically. Therefore, they're going to continue doing it. And I do that whenever I play Quacks. <laughs> I do. I wait yeah. until one of the the die feel right. Yeah. And that has nothing to do with anything. Mm-hmm. I could just randomly go in and pick one. I have Delton pick one. I could have Steve put his paw in the first one that his paw touches. That's it. But I put my hand in the bag. I'm like, this one feels right. That's my ritual. <laughs> this is the one. This is the one. This one felt right. Mm-hmm. It makes. There's there's no no magic to it, but I just attribute that to that. And so uh, if we feel like we have a lot of power in the situation, we're likely to press forward. If we feel lucky, punk, yeah. um, but also poor impulse control, too, can make it more likely that we keep pressing our luck, keep pressing our luck, keep pressing our luck. That makes sense. It really does. Uh, so, But speaking of impulse control, back to topic here, there are other versions of impulse control issues in games. <laughs> Having poor impulse control in games, which is, for me, and... <laughs> This is basically uh, uh, stereotypical of ADHD people, I come to find. Uh, it is basically hyper-focusing on something. So you're playing a game. Let's say, what's a game here that we could very easily say, this is what we're doing. Uh, let, let's, say, let's say an example of something we played recently, War of the Ring. We played War of the Ring recently, by the way, really liked it. Very long game. Very hard teach, very hard learn. Six hours of my <laughs> life. It was, it was a long time. Uh, but we played War of the Ring. So let's say in War of the Ring, we're playing, and I'm like, okay, I got this plan. You know, where I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. It's using this card and this card, as long as the dice roll are cooperative. And then you're like, okay, well, now you're going to draw your cards to the beginning of the turn. So you draw your two cards at the beginning of the turn. Oh, I like this card. Ooh, ooh, I should do this. Yeah, let's do that. And then I've just thrown my entire plan out the window that was probably a better option because this one card came out that I was like, oh, I like that. And then all I could think about was, I have to use this card because it's good, because I like it. I should use it. It's the best. Look at it. Why wouldn't you use it? And then your brain just takes off. And even though that feels like a slower version of, of impulsivity, it's still being impulsive about that decision. And I find a lot of games that have any kind of card market that comes out or any kind of, uh, really, that's it. Any, anything that can be revealed that can change things. Like, if it's a game where your opponent changes the board state, that's usually not that drastically important in terms of this, for at least for me. But if there's a game where, like, new cards come out, new powers come out, new things reveal that can alter my own play, I'm like, ooh, ooh, maybe I need, oh, I'm going to buy that. That's a good idea. And I just throw my old stuff out the window, like, ah, you don't matter, you're stupid. And it's always bad. That's such a bad way to play it. And I feel like you're really good at ignoring that. Yes, I'm kind of opposite. I hyper-focus on my first plan. I'm like, this is the only way. <laughs> <laughs> you hyper-focus, but it's not the impulsive not, style. Not impulsive style, no. Uh, another way that uh, impulsivity can show up in games are like reaction time games. Mm-hmm. So like, when you were, I, I think back to playing Slapjack. And whenever a, you know, a king comes out and you're trying to... So in Slapjack, uh, what you're trying to do is be the first one to slap the jack whenever it's revealed, and then you get all the cards. Whenever you, whoever has the most cards at the end of the game is the winner. And so you're flipping, you're flipping, you're flipping, you see a jack, you slap it. Flipping, 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 see a queen, you hold on. Flipping, 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 see a king, all of a sudden you slap it. Like your, your brain processes it as a jack where they where really it sees a face card, and it, it slaps it, and you're like, oh, dang it. And so that means that you... I, I can't remember, like, you, you lose something or another. I don't know at all. I don't remember. It's you, been a while you, since you we played. You slapped it. You slapped it, yeah. And so what happens is uh, our brain sometimes takes about a second or so to really process information, and that's not really helpful for those games that require quick reaction times because a second, that's, a, that's a really a while when it comes to reactions. Yeah, you're like, I'm going to wait just a second. That was just a second. Like, that, that was just a second. That, that takes a minute that's, if you're competing with somebody, and... I think this is one of the reasons I should never, ever, ever be a soldier. 
is I have poor impulse control in those situations of because it, it's it, I think it's the same it's the same feeling of you're expecting something bad or something to react to and you can easily react incorrectly because you're so anxious about it and you're so ready and like posed and poised to go that it could in a wartime state could be very dangerous and I would never be good in that situation because my reaction in those situations is bad and anxiety exacerbates ADHD. <laughs> That's why I suck at real-time games. I always enjoy them, but I'm terrible at them because I'm like, ah. That's uh, any game that has slapping in it, freaking taco, cat, goat, cheese, pizza, can't do it, can't handle it. Every I want to either slap everything or nothing because I'm waiting and then I look and I'm, I'm like giving myself the time to process, oh, that's a thing? And then by that point, everybody's already slapped it and I'm out. I just, I, I don't have the reaction time. It's the same reason uh, that I have found in video games, learning from playing through both the God of Wars recently, the PS5, uh, God of War, technically four and Ragnarok, is I just put them on easy because I don't have a good like reaction speed for those sorts of things. It's the same with uh, any of the, for anybody that plays video games, if you've ever played a Souls-like or a FromSoft game, which is Dark Souls, Dark Souls 2, 3, uh, uh, what's the other one? Sekiro and Bloodborne that I'm playing. I'm really bad at those because I have to focus so hard about relaxing and calming to be able to react appropriately rather than overreact or something. Because the, in those games, you're like, oh, I have to dive at the right time. Well, if you're not actually waiting for the right time and you're diving instinctively too soon, you're just going to die because uh, creatures in that game, especially bosses, they will swing their arm back and hit you quickly. And then they'll swing their arm back and like bring it halfway and then pause and then hit you and it throws you off and I'm expecting it. And so I'm jumping too quickly. And that so video games have taught me that I'm bad at that, which is why I put them on easy if I'm playing them, because I don't have time to die over and over again. But in board games, it's the same way. Slapping games, games that I have to quick react to something and try to beat everybody to the point, is not going to happen. I'm out. Do you want another psychology lesson? Sure. So I just wanted to state first that those with ADHD. Hello. Like there is, there's statistically no difference in IQ, intelligence, anything like that between those with ADHD and no, and without ADHD. Well, that's good to know. Yeah. So just because you have ADHD, it doesn't mean that you have any, you know, which IQ is kind of BS in itself, but your, your intelligence, your ability to process yes. things is not hindered. However, those with ADHD, what the research suggests is that they have uh, typically lower processing speeds. Oh. Again, that does not mean that we have lower intelligence. That just means that we process information slower. Okay. And so what ha that's why stimulants such as coffee or Adderall, what it does is it speeds up the brain and speeds up the processing speed. So that's what helps with the impulse control. That's what helps with the decision making oh. because you're speeding up the brain. And so you're basically getting fuel to the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain. Because mm -hmm. the thinking part of the brain is what kind of helps us with our reaction times. It helps us with impulse control. The thinking part of the brain is the brakes of the brain. And so what happens is, you know, whenever we have ADHD, we tend to have more racing thoughts. It jumps from topic to topic. Uh, it's more difficult to engage impulse control because the processing speed of the prefrontal cortex, the thinking part of the brain, is not as quick. And so that's why stimulants, you know, they rev up the, the engine. And so make it basically add brake, brake or brake fuel. There you go. They got brake fluid brake in the fluid. There we go. Yeah. Um, and so if you add anxiety on top of that, well, one of the core components of anxiety is racing thoughts. So now you have racing thoughts of anxiety mm -hmm. plus racing thoughts of ADHD. And they're like, hey, let's run a race together. And so it actually exacerbates the symptoms and also makes it more difficult to focus because ah. one of the key components of anxiety is difficulty concentrating, which is also a key component of ADHD, which is also a key component of trauma. And so if you ever like, uh, if somebody ever gets diagnosed with ADHD, oftentimes we'll try to rule out anxiety and PTSD at the same time because mm -hmm. all of them look very similar and all of them exacerbate each other. And so with, with correlating that to in the beginning when you said that statistically speaking, a person with ADHD and a person without ADHD, there's no distinguishing factor between intelligence that's not correlated to ADHD at all. It's because the symptoms of ADHD make it appear so on like testing and things because yes. the anxiety and the stress of the test. Absolutely, yeah. Nice. And so if you have difficulty concentrating in general, difficulty mm -hmm. paying attention or, you know, difficulty staying focused, yeah. and then you're being tested on stuff and that increases your anxiety, you're not going to perform well under anxiety. Right. Nobody does. Literally, if we look at the brain, the amygdala, the emotion part of the brain, 
the more activated that is, the less activated our thinking part of the brain is. I think we went over that uh, yep. in the eliciting empathy episode. Yes, that's like our most common talk because it's just so relevant to so much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. I also talk about it with like every single client at least once a week, it seems like. <laughs> it, it makes sense. Yeah. But uh, no, that, I mean, that makes perfect sense, though, that uh, that's how that all works down. And that's why some people are just not going to excel at those kind of games that need that quick reaction speed. Yeah. And again, it doesn't mean that you're bad. doesn't mean that you have low intelligence. It's some, it, sometimes you just it's just literally don't process quite as quickly as everyone else. Yeah. And so that ironically leads to quicker impulses yes. because our the brakes aren't there. And so it yeah. looks like we're more hyperactive. It looks like we're more likely to push through and yeah. like we're not thinking like, no, our brain is thinking just we're acting before our brain fully processes. Oh, shit. So what you're saying is if I was ever trying to rob a tomb and a giant boulder came rolling down, I'm done. Yes. <laughs> because I, I would just go, I have to run. And then I would just fall over because <laughs> half of me would try to run and the other half's going, wait, what's happening? Yes. Yeah. I'd be squished. Yeah. yeah that's just that's just how it is. Yeah. And that's not just people with ADHD. I mean, everybody has some sort of uh, impulse struggle. I don't think I might oh, yeah. have ADHD. I've never been diagnosed for it, but I don't think I have ADHD. But again, I have very bad <laughs> impulse control when it comes to pressure luck you're, games. You're easily excitable. <laughs> I'm easily excitable. Like, yeah, let's go. Yeah, that's every every time. This one feels right. You're like, I want to do this. Ah. That's why I get us to the Great Salt Plains 30 minutes north of where we're supposed to be. Yes, and then we have to drive 30 more minutes to go back around to where we actually want to dig for crystals, or oh. you can, I should say. I was so excited about going to the Great Salt Plains. I'm like, yeah, we just got to go to the to the Wildlife Refuge, not the State Park. Yeah, we made it to the Wildlife Refuge. Okay, we got to go 30 minutes south. Yeah, we got to drive to the other side where the original GPS in Riley's truck was actually taking us. And I'm like, no, Haley sets up here. Never listening to Haley for directions again. I was just too excited to look. That's what we learned. That's what we learned for sure. Uh, well, I think those are some good examples of impulsivity in gaming. I don't think we need to dive into any more. We're going to be here for six hours. Also, just buying games. And just buying games. It's, uh, you know, uh, that's rewarding. Impulse. It's rewarding on its own. Uh, yes, with that being said, let's move into the questions so we can wrap this up. And now, join us for a Malthouse Games podcast special bite-sized question. So, the question for today is going to be what is our most impulsive moment that we can think of right now? Mine is definitely when we were in Austin. I know I've told this story at least a couple of times before on the podcast, but yeah. so uh, it was for, I think it was my graduation trip from from college, from graduate school. Uh, Delton took me on a trip. It was birthday. It was birthday. No, it was birthday. That's right. It was a birthday trip. So Delton took me on a surprise train trip down to Austin. And it's our very first night in Austin. We're walking down six streets, like nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. We're just like, boot scooting around, looking at, you know, what are the shops that are open? What are the bars that are open? And suddenly Hagrid, like a seven foot tall guy dressed as Hagrid, Hagrid comes up to me and says, hey, do you want to go to Harry Potter burlesque? And I just said, yes. And I followed Hagrid down the dark alley and went to Harry Potter burlesque. No questions asked, not where is it, not how much is it, anything like that. Yes, I did not care. Followed him in there. It was 20 bucks to get in. Saw Voldemort with no nose and no pants. It was delightful. Uh, yeah, that was definitely your most, you were like, we have, we have to go. And I was like, do we though? And you're like, yes, we have to go. I mean, I'm not really a burlesque person, but whenever Hagrid stops you in the middle of the street and says, you want to go to Harry Potter burlesque? I can't. I, I have to. Yes. That's so funny. Uh, that, what that, about you? Definitely a good one for you. <laughs> uh, I already forgot what I was going to say. The concert. Yes. So there's a concert coming up here in Oklahoma City. I found out about it uh, through, I had an email for... Like when tickets were going on sale because I'm signed up to the newsletter for one of the bands and they sent out a pre-sale code essentially saying, hey, when the pre-sale goes on, you're able to get them. Just use this pre-sale code. And I was so excited and worried that it would sell out. I don't know why I was worried it would sell out. It's the zoo, the zoo amphitheater. It never sells out. Bob and, Barker's worst nightmare. Yeah. And also these bands, they're not going to sell out in Oklahoma City. Just they're not. But I was super excited about it. So everything goes on sale and I pull up the website and I'm all like, nervous that they're going to sell out. And I'm like, okay, what the heck? You know, general admission, that's fine. This and that, blah, blah, blah. And then I just check out. And after I check out, I was like, oh, that seems like a lot. Wait. And then I go and look and I was like, man, these are more expensive than I thought they'd be. And I go look and I'm like, oh shit, I bought general admission VIP rather than just general admission. <laughs> Accidentally. Uh, the general admission is just the lawn. General admission. General admission VIP uh, is the section that is, there's the general admission lawn, which is everything in the zoo. And then there's a barricade that leads into basically closer to the stage. That is the VIP general admission. We're going to mosh. We're not going to mosh. There will be moshes. We will not mosh. 
however, the good thing about being in the VIP, this isn't the VIP that comes with like meet and greets and stuff because those were like three, four hundred dollars a piece. And I was like, uh, no, thank you. But it has its own bar off to the side and I think its own bathrooms and you can only get in those with the VIP general admission. So Hell yeah. we should have a little easier time getting a drink or using the restroom, which will be nice. But Delton accidentally through poor I impulse control. felt like such an idiot. <laughs> I was like, I'm a moron. Divorce me. This is dumb. I spent so much. I didn't spend that much money. It was like it was like under $200 for both of us. And they're two of my all-time favorite bands. It's worth it. It will be a fantastic show. It'll be great. I still felt bad. I was like, I could have spent $100, but I spent like $180. (laughs) But whatever. This was a while ago into this month. I'm excited for that. Except it's on a Sunday night, which is blah. Two weeks from today, baby. Two weeks from today. It'll be good. Uh, Today is Sunday. But yes, I think that that is everything for this episode. I want to give a shout out to our awesome Patreon patrons. Thank you so much to Alan, Jennifer, and Cliff. Uh, Thank you to everyone else who supports us on Patreon. Those are just the three at the level that get shouted out on the podcast. If you want to be like them or any of the others, you can head to patreon.com slash malthousegames to check it out. Uh, As of right now, I need to do Twitter shoutouts. I need to do that at some point today, hopefully. Uh, But I get to do stuff like that. Uh, We have paused doing video versions for the Patreon for the moment being because it's been hard having the time to edit that on top of the regular podcast and stuff. Once I figure out a better system, a better flow, uh, maybe get some things rearranged a little bit, then hopefully I can kick that back in for our patrons. And uh, if it goes smoothly enough, hopefully one day we can actually just have a video podcast on YouTube uh, for everybody, which would be kind of cool. But uh, that's that. Make sure to hit us up on social media at Malthouse Games, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S Games. You can also send an email if you would like, if you have any beers you think we should look at, questions you want us to answer, topics to cover, or a game that you think we should play, you can do that. Contact at malthousegames.com. You can always find Haley on social media at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-K. That is at Squirrely Geek. I never use my personal, just go to the Malthouse Games social media. That's where I'm at. You can go to malthousegames.com for our website, which, yeah, it's got mostly, it's mostly updated aside from just the most recent episodes. Uh, but it's it's got some different things on there. You can also head to shop.malthousegames.com to grab a t-shirt with our logo on it or a beer glass with our logo on it. Uh, all that kind of fun little stuff. I think that that's everything today. I'm hungry and have to pee. So that's going to be it. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Malthouse Games Podcast, episode 142. Until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Answer the life, universe, and everything is 42. Bye. Bye.